Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Welcome to the Dogs Program, the Defenders of Government Schools here on 3CR 855 on the AM dial and podcast on the WWWs, um, available on the websites, I suppose, at our website, www.adogs.info and the 3CR website as well. But I suppose if you haven't heard us before, quoting websites is not going to help you. We are, in fact, the Defenders of Government Schools here on 3CR Community Radio. Um, we have to defend government schools because they're constantly under attack, unfortunately, and we've been doing it now for three decades here on the radio. Um, we'll have to keep doing it again because there's an election, and um, I suppose many people are wondering who they should vote for. And many people in Australia are thinking, what are the education policies of the major parties, or indeed the minor ones? And here at the Dogs, uh, we do not under any circumstances, inform you or tell you to vote for one person or another. That's not our job. We are defenders of government schools and various political parties have fluid policies when it comes to public education. So the one thing I'm not going to do here on the Dogs Program is tell you to vote for a political party. Um, We're not like um, various religious people in pulpits telling people what to vote. We're not like that. This is a community radio and there are many people here at 3CR who have diametrically opposed views politically, all coming together here in the one place, which is what a community is all about. It's about people with different ideas and different focuses coming together. And we here at the Defenders of Government Schools um, nevertheless like to analyse what each of the political parties are telling us about what they're going to do with the education system here of Australia. So we're going to have a quick sort of fly-by overview of what the major parties are going to tell you about their education policies. But more importantly than that, I think, because elections come and go, I'm going to tell you about some underlying facts about the education system in Australia in a fascinating article just written in the last little while, I'll be quoting from, by a fellow called David Zignia, who no longer works at Monash University. He's moved over to Southern Cross University, and he's done some fascinating research on what's happening out there in the schools of Australia. And then later on, we'll be taking a little trip over to our English-speaking cousins on the other side of the Pacific um, and find out what's going on over there. It's a very interesting article about the Secretary of Education in the United States called a woman called Betsy DeVos. Um, extraordinary woman, actually. Heir to the Amway fortune. Um, she has many good qualities, one of which is she's so wealthy that she has her own private jet to fly herself around and she doesn't charge the American taxpayers for that. <laughs> Isn't she nice? She's got so much money she doesn't need the taxpayers' money. Isn't that lovely personally? However, you're about to find a little bit more about Betsy DeVos and her ideas about what's good and bad in education. Um, Separate to that, there's been, some, again, some fascinating research done by the Century Foundation over in the United States, um, which has to do with the benefits of having an education system that is both racially and socioeconomically integrated. Now, this actually has very important repercussions for us in Australia because we do not have an education system that is racially and socioeconomically integrated. We separate out our children when they go to school. Uh, We separate them out on the basis of the religion of their parents um, into the various private school and denominational schools. We separate them out more and more in Australia on the basis of how much their parents earn. Now, this has repercussions, and there are significant benefits to not doing this. Uh, That's significant benefits not just to the children of Australia, but indeed to your child in your school. And I'll be highlighting the findings of this very, I think, groundbreaking research from the Century Foundation in the United States. So that's what we've got coming up. And, of course, we'll always finish, as we always try to do, with our great state school. 
Um, this great state school we're talking about this week is actually very close to my heart because I actually went there years and years ago. Um, it doesn't seem to have changed very much, and it was excellent then. It's a great state school now, and I have to keep you in suspense because you'll find out what the great state school of the week is for this week. It's at the end of the program. But before we do that, um, after a little break, I think I'm going to tell you about some policies of various political people leading up to the elections. Um, not going to spend a lot of time on it because you will, you'll find out why. Bat Rock is on again this Saturday on the 4th of May at Bombay Rock on Sydney Road in Brunswick. Bats are incredibly important to our ecosystem and due to habitat loss and climate change, they're becoming endangered. Fly by Night is a licensed wildlife shelter and is run entirely by volunteers dedicated to the rescue and rehabilitation of the threatened grey-headed flying fox as well as other native bats and wildlife. All proceeds this Saturday will go to Fly by Night Bat Clinic. Bat-loving bands performing are Keggan, Monkey Butler, The Caddo Army, Commissioner Bourbon, Bronze, Nosferotica, 16 by 9 and 3CR Stinky Girl kicks things off. Entry is free from 5.30 onwards at Bombay Rock on Sydney Road. To find out more about Fly By Night Bat Clinic, go to flybynight.org.au. My name is Ian Ham, and I'm the chair of the Healing Foundation's Stolen Generations Reference Group. At three weeks of age, I was separated from my birth family. And even though they lived just 50 kilometres away, I never knew they existed. I never met my mum and it pains me to this day. There are thousands of Aboriginal people just like me and our stories have never been heard. These stories form the basis of Australia's first Stolen Generations resource kit for schools. To download the kit, go to healingfoundation.org.au. A 3CR supporter. Welcome back to the Dogs Program. Look, I'm, I'm love to turn to that benefit gig. It sounds brilliant. In fact, our producer, I know, is heavily involved with it and so you should turn up too. Look, I promised before that before we had those wonderful and interesting announcements that I talk about the various political uh, parties and their educational policies leading up to the election. Um, this is actually quite it's quite a short conversation. Um, you'd think or you would hope that it would be longer, and I think many people out there who are going to vote are going to be voting um, because they'll be looking and scrutinising the education policies of the major parties. The two major parties, one of them is called the Liberal Party. I don't know why. Um, the other one's called the Labor Party. Again, I don't know why. <laughs> it's one of those things where it's lost to the mist of time because those two things don't necessarily apply anymore, those two words. They have no real meaning. Um, their education policies are basically and fundamentally the same, which is to segregate children and to spend a large amount of taxpayers' money funding a private education system, either specifically Catholic in nature, and don't think of me as being sectarian here. I'm just saying the way it is. There is a Catholic church bureaucracy which runs um, schools which educate around about 25 to 30 percent of the population of Australia. So they are called the Catholic Education Office and that's their name so I have to talk about them that way. Um, They think both major parties wish to continue to fund Catholic education at a level either the same as state schools or more. Um, Both major parties think this is a good idea. Um, I'm assuming and I think I'm right, is that they're doing this because the political implications of having various bishops jumping up and down um, saying, you know, don't vote for the people that don't give us money um, would be political suicide. And so both Shorten and Morrison, who are, well, both of them profess a deep and profound uh, religious faith, <laughs> uh, give deep and profound amounts of money to religious organisations to fund their schools. Um, now, it's, of course, it's not just Catholic schools that are funded, it's schools of all denominations, here in Australia, um, from Scientology uh, all the way through to the Catholic faith and everything in between. If there's a religion and they've got a school, we the taxpayers pay for it. Um, Labor has one point of difference with the coalition, one point of difference only. Uh, I'll, sorry, both of them promise to increase funding to everybody um, if it goes, if more money goes to the state schools and obviously it goes to the private schools as well. Um, they'll say this. They've always said this. They'll continue to say this. That's of no particular interest to any voter uh, because we all know that if, if money goes to students that need it in Australia, both political parties will spend money on students that don't at the same time. Um, here at the Dogs, we think that's just a waste. That's just a complete waste of money and that the only funds that taxpayers spend on education should go to people and children in schools, which are open to all, um, don't exclude anyone, 
um, are secular in nature, so they don't promote one religion over another, and of course are free at point of entry, and that of course is state schools. But as I say, there's one difference between the Labour Party and the Liberal Party, because the Liberal Party just before they came to the election said they're going to put $1.2 billion in what's called a choice and affordability fund which goes only to Catholic independent and independent schools, does not go to state schools at all. Now, this fund is to help the Catholic schools and the independent schools transition to a new funding arrangement where they say um, the Catholic and independent schools might be receiving less money. However, the figures show that they won't be receiving less money, so it's just money for nothing. Now, the Deputy Opposition Leader, um, Tanya Plibersek, has previously said that this $1.2 billion is a slush fund and she's con- committed to actually matching the overall funding levels but expressed doubts about the name on the $1.2 billion. So she says, I'll still give the Catholic Independent $1.2 billion, but I'll probably give it a different name. Bear in mind that there's about half a billion dollars in addition that's being given for capital improvement from the federal government, which is to be only used by private schools. None of that money is allowed to be used by state schools, which is also quite strange. The Labor Party agrees with this, and they are functionally saying that they have no difference in policy between the Liberal and Labor parties in Australia. So there is one other party that gets more than 10% of the vote in Australia, and that's called the Australian Greens. And they do have um, a contrasting and different policy. They say that they are the party of public education. This is the Greens policy, and I'm reading from it now so as not to misquote them. They say that with public money, public schools have to come first. They mention that under coalition governments, billions have been cut from school funding, and we, and we, this is wrong, and just 13% of public schools will have the funding to meet their minimum needs by 2023, while 65% of non-government schools will be overfunded by the same time. I should agree with their figures, and they are right. Now, the Greens used to have an education policy that said that the Greens did not support government funding of private educational institutions, religious or otherwise. They've actually changed that, and they're just saying that state schools should have priority over the money going forward. Now, they're saying that if they get into government, they will invest $24.3 billion in public schools over the next decade, and under the Greens plan, the Commonwealth contributions to the schooling resource standard will increase to 25%, ensuring all public schools receive 100% of funding needed to provide quality education for students going into the future. Um, they will work with the states and territories to ensure that the, that the state and territories also contribute to this 100% and everything will be fine. What they do not say, however, is that they're going to take money out of private schools funding. They're just saying they're going to do state schools first and private schools will get their money when that's all done. Um, so the Greens have changed over the last few years. They are intent upon funding private education and the segregation of children along religious and socioeconomic grounds in Australia, which I find quite disappointing. But it does contrast to the two other major parties because they explicitly say that if they were in government, the government would fund government schools first and private schools second. Unfortunately, both of the other major parties at the federal level say we will fund private school first and then state schools when the private schools have got their money. So those are the education policies in a nutshell of the three major parties in Australia leading up to the election, federal election of 2019. It's all rather depressing, I'd have to say, um, but I think that's all we have can actually talk about because that's all they've released on their particular websites. As far as I can find, um, that's all that's publicly available. If you have any, any other ideas about that, please feel free to give me a call. Um, give, give the radio station a call or contact us at adogs at www.adogs.info. You, if you've got more information than I do, then um, well, that's great. That's good. Um, I, can, I, can, can, I can use that information, tell the listeners about it, and we can contribute to the democratic process. But until then, that's all I've got to say about it. But there is some other more, much more interesting things going on about what exactly is the benefit of a functioning state school system in two articles, one from the United States and one from here in Australia, which I'll be sharing with you. Um, after a bit of, I don't know, a reflective, relaxing, and, and I have to say, quite beautiful and sacred music from the 16th century by Mr Thomas Tallis. Have a listen to this.
Welcome back to the Dogs Program. Oh, listen to that music. I think I grew a few, grew a few brain cells. <laughs> that was really. I, I enjoyed Thomas Tallis. Um, we'll be having some more similar music later in the program. But now I've got you all calm. Um, I'm going to not outrage you, but I'm going to really hopefully interest you in what David Zinnia has to say. He wrote an article for the Conversation last week, based upon some research he's been doing out there at Southern Cross University, and basically. The research comes up with a very interesting conclusion, which is, and many parents know this already, public schools actually outperform private schools and with less money. Now, he says it's often claimed that private schools outperform public schools. In recent days, a media report revealed that Liberal Party candidate for the Melbourne seat of McNamara had previously written in support of public funding of private schools. The report in the paper... Um, and the candidate herself, whose name is Kate Ashmore, she wrote in 2001 when she said, and I quote, this is from the Liberal Party candidate, she said, I was only able to attend a private school via a heavy, heavy subsidy due to the income restraints of my parents. And I firmly believe that I would never have achieved a high VCE score I did if it hadn't been for my private school education. But, and this is the but, David says his analysis of the MySchool data and the VCE results between 2014 and 2018, so these are the, the up-to-the-minute ones, show that public schools have similar, or even better, VCE results than private schools with similar rankings of socioeconomic status. And these public schools achieve the results with far less funding per student. And so the question is, if you're a business person, what is your return on your investment? Now, those who argue in favour of public funding of private schools claim private schools are more efficient and academically outperform public schools. The conservative side of politics believe there is no equity problem to address in Australian education. The current federal government relies on conservative researchers' so-called evidence denying any causal link between socioeconomic status and student academic outcomes. Now... His analysis, of course, compares the results of 229 private and 278 public schools. Schools with fewer than 20 students in Year 12 were excluded, as were select entry public schools. That is, the people, you know, people at places like McRobb and Melbourne High. They were just excluded. The analysis compared both VCE results and school-based data, including funding details available from the MySchool and individual school websites. The analysis took into account the socioeconomic status of the schools and, the use, and used the ICSIA, which is the Index of Community Socioeconomic Advantage measure. Now, the ICSIA is a scale that allows a comparison of the levels of educational advantage or disadvantage students bring to their academic studies. The average experience across all Australian schools, and I've said this before, and David agrees, is 1,000. In Victoria, the average experience is 1,031, while in Tasmania and the Northern Territory, the average is less than 1,000. Schools above that figure are deemed more advantaged than schools below. The school with the highest exterior value is the Victorian Presbyterian Ladies' College in Burwood, and it has an exterior value of 1,210. There are 38 other private schools at the top ranking before the first public non-selective school, which is, in fact, Princess Hill Secondary College in Carlton, which has an value of 1,156. Now, in Victoria, 318 schools are above 1,000, while those below average include only eight non-government schools, either Islamic or Catholic. The lowest year among these eight is 926, while the lowest public school next year is 876. So that gives you an idea about the range of students that attend public schools. Now, what did they find? And this is interesting. This is not data from America. This is data going on in Victoria, the Northern Territory, and Tasmania. And this is up to 2018. So this is current. He said, even excluding select entry schools, public schools equal or outperform private schools with similar ICSIA rankings. Okay, so Victorian schools with VCE results are similar or like private, public, like private and public schools. Their median scores and percentages of 40-plus scores, which are you know, good scores, uh, by the way, only 9% of students will get a score of more than 40. So it's, this, this is smart kids in whatever school you've got. 
Okay. Now, the results that they found were that public schools, and I think this is fascinating, public schools outperformed private schools across the state of Victoria, across the, st- across the territory of the Northern Territory, and indeed across Tasmania, which is absolutely, as far as I'm concerned, fascinating. Because this data goes flies right in the face of what this Liberal Party politician was saying. In fact, it goes right across the face of what parents will tell you if they send their children to private schools. Now, the average government funding per student, because then we get to the cost, then we get to the question of the return on the investment. Okay, around 50% of funding is from federal and state funds for independent schools and 80% or more for Catholic schools. Now, in 2018, the resource was, and this is fascinating because you know how I've always said what you need to spend on an average child in Australia to get a gold standard education? Well, their figure was $13,764, which pretty much is what I say from Victoria, so I, I must have been instinctively on the money. Now, more than half of Victorian public schools received less than that. Okay, so they're doing it hard and they're doing it cheap. Not the private schools. Oh, no, no, no. Now, conservative commentators claim that socioeconomic status has, has little impact on student academic performance. But this, of course, has been debunked over and over again. The analysis of the VCE results up until 2018 demonstrates that school performance is strongly correlated to the socioeconomic index of the school. The higher the exia generally, the better school performs. In VCE postcodes don't equal destiny, however, as there are some exceptions. But the exceptions, of course, are public schools, not private schools. Public schools are where children from poorer backgrounds succeed more frequently. So postcode doesn't equal destiny if you're in a state school. However, if you're in a private school, you have less of a chance if you come from a poorer background. Fascinating. For example, Nary Warren, South, Peter 12 College. More than 55% of the children are from non-English speaking backgrounds and 81% of the kids come from disadvantaged homes. That's the lowest quartile. That school, Nary Warren, South, Peter 12 College, outperforms most private schools with a median study score of 32 and almost 11% of its study scores are over 40%. So, Nary Warren, when it comes to the numbers, if you're lucky enough to be going there, no one cares how much money your parents have, which is the exact opposite of what a private school in Australia is all about. So, I find this data absolutely fascinating. I find it, how can I say, I find it deeply informative to parents and I find it deeply upsetting to me and other people who value the state education system. Also, it's been found, and I think this is interesting, he said, spending more money on students, spending more money on school buildings and well-being centres and international campuses and playing fields and equestrian facilities and rowing sheds and music centres and swimming swimming pools makes no difference at all when students have similar socioeconomic backgrounds. I'm going to say that again. Spending more money on buildings, well-being centres, international campuses, playing fields, equestrian facilities, rowing sheds, music centres and swimming pools makes no difference at all to your child because you are the parent of your child and how you view education is in fact the only thing that matters. And indeed the school they go to, if it's a state school, has significant benefits, not just educationally, which I'll be sharing with you in another bunch of interesting research that comes from the United States. But I'll be sharing that with you, I think, Um, because that was a lot to take in after a little bit more music this time from Mr Henry Purcell
That was Hear My Prayer by Henry Purcell, who shuffled off his mortal coil in about 1695, so he hasn't been around for a while, but gee, I'm glad he left that for us to listen to. That was again Henry Purcell. It was performed by the Old Cathedral Voices here in Melbourne. Um, the director was Jenny George, um, and it was from off their um, album A Musical Devotion. Yeah, before the break and before that lovely personal music, I was talking about an article written by David Zignia. Now, if you want to check his figures, please feel free to do so. That article um, was published on the Conversation website. And the Conversation is actually quite interesting. It's a not-for-profit journalism project that relies on the reader's support. Um, and if you go and have a look at it, I think it's worth, it's worth, it's worth um, doing it. They're sort of not a community radio station like 3CR, but they do create um, a, a place for quality analysis by Australian academics. Um, and it remains free and accessible to all. So it's called The Conversation. That's the website I got that data from. But now um, we're all calmed down. Thanks very much to Mr. Mr. Purcell. Um, and we're going to take a little trip over the Pacific Ocean because some interesting things happening in the United States. I'll be filling you in on what's going on over there when it comes to a very interesting study that they've done on the benefits of inclusive education. When I say inclusive, I mean education system where you don't separate children out on the basis of their race or the income that their parents happen to own. Um, because in some states, in the United States, they do that, and in some states, they don't. It's, it's, yeah, it's, a, it's, a, it's a united states in some ways, but very, very disparate in the others. But at the federal level, they have this woman called Betsy DeVos, who's the educational secretary appointed by their president, whose who's name is Donald... Um, Duh. Anyway, um, the the American president, I can't remember his name, um, he appointed this woman called Betsy DeVos. And she's fascinating because she hasn't yet been sacked. <laughs> Just about everyone else in the president's retinue has been sacked, but she hasn't. And it's interesting to find out why. And to find out why, I'm going to pass her over to our to our, our long-time supporter and producer here at the Dogs, which will be Dale. Can you tell us more about Betsy DeVos? Thanks, Rob. Yes, I've got an article here um, by Laura Meckler, um, Ashley Parker and Josh Dorsey uh, entitled Betsy DeVos Emerges a Trump Cabinet Survivor. In a presidential cabinet that resembles a season of Survivor more than the West Wing, an unlikely contestant is still standing after more than two years. Education Secretary Betsy DeVos remains so disliked in certain circles that her very name is a punchline. She mostly lands in the news for all the wrong reasons, such as being forced last month to defend budget cuts for the Special Olympics before angry lawmakers. President Trump has privately complained about her, insulting her intelligence on several occasions. According to a former senior administrator, administration official who worked closely with Trump and another senior official who is still at the White House. Yet the president shows no signs of asking her to resign, reflecting in part his lack of interest in the issue of education and the department responsible for it. And DeVos has no interest in departing. Advisers say she's excited by the tasks ahead. After two years of mostly undoing the work of her predecessors, she has shifted to advancing her own agenda. Topping her list is a proposal for a $5 billion a year tax credit that would reimburse taxpayers and corporate dollar and corporations dollar for dollar for donations to scholarship programs. DeVos, 61, came to Washington after a lifetime of advocating for school vouchers and other programs that allow families to channel tax dollars away from traditional public schools. Passage of such a plan would represent a crowning achievement, although it is unlikely given widespread democratic opposition. DeVos persuaded the Treasury Department to support the idea, even though the credit would complicate the tax code just two years after a bill passed to simplify it. She worked behind the scenes to negotiate and unite most school choice proponents behind the plan. Now she's travelling the country to promote the idea with trips so far to three states and more planned. At the White House, aides do not expect the measure to become law and Trump hardly mentions it but White House officials say DeVos gets credit for pushing the school's choice agenda which is popular with Trump's core of conservative supporters and DeVos who is deeply religious scores points for the president's 
for the president with evangelical Christians, an important part of his base that has stuck by Trump even as unseemly details of his personal life have spilled out. He has staffed his administration and surrounded himself with people who have deep roots and street cred in the faith community. Betsy would be at or near the top of that list, said Ralph Reed, founder of the Faith and Freedom Coalition and a long-time evangelical leader. DeVos does not shy from talking about her faith. At an event in January hosted by the Council for Christian Colleges and Universities, she spoke of her Christian education and said her faith helps her deal with public criticism. There's an audience I play to, and it's just an audience of one, she said. That's a true North Star. This account of DeVos's endurance in education in the Education Department's top job is based on interviews with eight people with direct knowledge of the Secretary's relationship with the President and with an understanding of the inner workings of the White House and Education Agency. Most of those people spoke on the condition of anonymity because of the sensitive nature of the relationships involved. So far, officials occupying 15 Cabinet-level positions have been fired all resigned since Trump took office. Leaders of state, justice, defence, homeland security, interior and health and human services have been fired, resigned or resigned under pressure or quit in protest. Trump has also overseen enormous turnover among top White House staffers. DeVos has benefited from Trump's lack of interest in education, officials say. And the president, despite his apprentice reputation for dispatching with poor performing employees, is actually loath to fire subordinates. In many cases, he's let them dangle for months before cutting the rope or makes their lives so miserable that they quit. DeVos aides say she has a good relationship with Trump. One advisor says the president calls DeVos maybe once a month to talk. He dismissed reports of the president speaking negatively about DeVos, saying he makes derisive remarks about all sorts of people. Also bolstering DeVos's standing, she hasn't had a single personal scandal. She's a billionaire and travels by private plane, but she pays for it herself. She donates her salary to charity. Even detractors say that, in person, DeVos is pleasant and easy to be around. She has shown personal grit, appearing in public in a wheelchair after she broke her pelvis in a cycling accident. In contrast, White House officials describe Trump as more hot and cold regarding DeVos and says he rarely sees her. He's been frustrated with her public mistakes, beginning with her disastrous confirmation hearing, they said, and expects perfection from his lieutenants. But Trump appreciates that she's tough, handles criticism, and is a loyal soldier willing to defend even unpopular policies, officials said. For instance, she spent three days last month defending the administration's plan to eliminate nearly $18 million in federal funding for a Special Olympics program in schools. She had fought to maintain the spending and was overruled by the White House Budget Office but still argued for the cut before hostile lawmakers at two congressional hearings. Then, after the three-day mini-drama, Trump swooped in and announced he was overruling my people and favoured the funding. It prompted a rare, albeit gentle, DeVos pushback. I am pleased and grateful the President and I see eye to eye on this issue and that he's decided to fund our Special Olympics grant. This is funding I have fought for behind the scenes for the last several years. Before that, she had kept quiet about the internal dispute. Early in the administration, she attended a dinner for the Special Olympics, dining with athletes, then speaking about her support for the program. Two weeks later, Timothy Shriver, chairman of the Special Olympics, was shocked to see the president's first budget plan, which proposed cutting all federal support for the group. He called DeVos to ask about it. At first, she defended the cut, but then backed down, implying it was never her idea. Six months later, she donated a quarter of her salary to the non-profit Congress 
to the non-profit. Congress ignored the President's request and increased the funding. DeVos kept quiet on other disagreements with the White House. She was against revoking documents meant to help schools work with transgender students, but never publicly protested. She didn't think that a school safety commission formed after the mass shooting in Parkland, Florida, should consider the question of racial disparities in student discipline. Again, she said nothing. Aides describe her as a loyal soldier, an approach that has helped keep her position with Trump secure. But DeVos has done little to win over critics who opposed her from the start. Detractors say she lacks basic knowledge about education, caring only about her pet issue of school choice. They charge that she wants to destroy, not bolster, public education, and they argue that someone who has never attended a public school has no business being education secretary. She is undeterred in her mission despite the forces against her, department spokeswoman Elizabeth Hill said. People see she is in it for the right reasons. Aides said DeVos has met with Democrats who might support her tax credit plan but declined to name them. She has never reached out to Charlie Barone, lobbyist for Democrats for Education Reform, a group that favours some of the same policies, such as more charter schools, and who might have been at least an occasional ally. Barone noted that Democrats have supported similar tax credits at the state level, but predicted most in Congress would reject a federal plan because it's not coupled with support for public schools. They're crazy if they think they have a chance with Democrats on this, he said. Outside Washington, DeVos still confronts protesters at public events. Inside the events, she rarely engages in discussion of topics that are not part of the program. Last fall, she toured Holmes County Central High in Lexington, Mississippi, in the Mississippi Delta, a poverty-stricken region. She was there to observe a distance learning advanced placement physics class, aided in part by Ivy League students tutoring over Skype. The secretary gamely participated in an experiment involving flicking a piece of paper from under a penny balanced on her finger. Oh, I did it, she exclaimed, high-fiving a student. During a roundtable discussion, one person raised an issue affecting the school system, very severe teacher shortages. Dozens of classes were being taught by uncertified long-term substitutes because the system cannot recruit enough teachers. DeVos did not respond to that point. When asked about the teacher shortage by local reporters, the secretary replied that teachers need more autonomy and more opportunities for advancement, and she said schools should think outside the box. She did not offer ideas for attracting more teachers to the rural district. If you're focused on doing the right thing for students, she said, solutions are going to follow. Asked later about her response, Nathan Bailey, her chief of staff, said it's not her role to offer specifics. The job of Secretary of Education is not to solve every problem in education. She often doesn't opine from on high on how to solve local problems. She thinks everyone should come together in the community to solve the problems. Absolutely fascinating. Everyone should come together to solve the problems. Yes, and school choice means that certain people will be excluded when the coming together happens, I'm sure, from her point of view. Um, Look, after after a few messages, I want to share with you some really interesting that comes out at the same time as Betsy DeVos's wandering around the United States in her private plane. And that's fascinating research, very relevant to her in Australia. But um, after these... I have to get the car service for the big drive on Friday. I'll make sure the kids are ready. I won't forget mozzie spray this time. Oh, and we can't forget to vote before we go. What? The federal election is on Saturday the 18th of May, and all Australian citizens age 18 years and over must vote. But if you know you won't be able to make it to a polling place on election day, you may be able to vote early. To find out how, go to AEC gov.au or call 132326. It's our vote and our future. Authorised by the Electoral Commissioner Canberra. A 3CR supporter. QR Code is an LGBTIQA plus health podcast made by queers. Across eight episodes, hear us engaging with our communities discussing diverse and intersecting topics. 
on In Your Face on the last Friday of every month. Or download from 3cr.org.au forward slash QR code. And follow us on Facebook at QR Code 3CR, funded by the City of Yarra. Well, that's fascinating. Yeah, vote early, but don't vote often. That's what I say. And also, it's good to see that there's an yeah, even more diversity here on 3CR, a new queer program. Excellent. Um, I promised you just before listening to those very informative and interesting messages that um, I'd tell you about some new research that's come out from the United States in a place called the Century Foundation. Now, the Century Foundation is, again, a not-for-profit who's doing some research on what happens when you have a truly universal education system. That is, it's a school or a series of schools or a country with a whole heap of schools where it doesn't matter how much your parents earn, it doesn't matter about the colour of your skin, it doesn't matter about your politics, and it doesn't matter about your religion. All the children are educated together, rich and poor, um, of various faiths, in what will be called um, an integrated education system. Now, integrated education schools, schools that, that, that follow this, have a number of benefits, and these benefits are, are, are extraordinary. The first thing that happens is you have the, stu- the students of privilege, the students for whatever reason, the, whatever the culture, they have the skin the right colour, they have the parents of the right income, they are privileged. And those students attend these schools. Their results show no difference. The privilege that they have in that, in that society, in that culture, in that school, um, is maintained. Um, their, their relative wealth doesn't get, they don't get any poorer by attending there, and their educational outcomes certainly don't get any worse. However, something else very interesting happens. For those students who, in many situations, if they're not integrated into the one school, that means they're siloed, they are segregated. Now, here in Australia, we have a segregated education system where the rich kids and the poor kids go to different schools. In America, some states they have them where it's integrated and some states they have it where it's not. And so they can do a comparison between one and the other. In Australia, we can't have that comparison because because we're already segregated, you know, like in South Africa during apartheid, except in an educational sense. But in America, they've, done a f- they've, they've studied a large number of schools, 4 million students, in fact, across America. And they found that students in integrated schools have average higher test scores. So they do better on tests in schools that are integrated than in schools that are not. So the students of America in integrated schools do better on tests. And, of course, if we go to the Australian context, doing good on tests seems to be the only thing that education systems for. But it doesn't just stop there. Students in integrated schools are more likely to enrol in university and post-secondary education. That's all students, rich and poor alike. Students in integrated schools are less likely to drop out of school. So they're more likely to stick with it from go to woe, from P to 12. And integrated schools help reduce racial in America, racial achievement gaps. So it doesn't matter about the colour of your skin if you go to an integrated school, black or white, brindle or whatever colour, or whatever your your cultural background, um, there there is a reduced achievement gap across all of those groups. Integrated classrooms encourage critical thinking. They encourage problem solving and they encourage creativity more than non-integrated classrooms. Because the challenge of living in the world is there in the, in the class itself. It's not something that stops at the school gate. And so, therefore, the problem-solving and the creativity involved is increased in an integrated school. Now, attending a diverse school, that's with a very diverse population, can help reduce racial bias, and it can actually very simply counter racial stereotypes. If you're going to school with a whole bunch of people with a whole bunch of places from a whole bunch of income levels, you, you can't sit there and go, oh, gee, I hate poor people, they're just all stupid. Because the bloke sitting next to you might be poor, might, you don't know, you don't care, and it doesn't matter. I don't like black people, said someone in an all-white school. Well, if you have an integrated school, you can't say that because some people you just like and some people you don't. You often find that the colour of their skin's got nothing to do with it. Also, students who attend integrated schools are more likely to seek out integrated settings later in life. Later in life, they don't ghettoise themselves because it's a part of their childhood experience that all people come together. Integrated classrooms can improve student satisfaction and indeed their intellectual self-conscious, self-confidence. Okay, well, 
whether I'm a girl or I'm a boy or I'm black or I'm white or I'm, I'm Christian or I'm Muslim or whatever, that's got nothing to do with my math test. <laughs> and they learn this just by being there in that situation. Um, also, learning in integrated schools, in integrated sense, can enhance the student's capacity for leadership. They're not afraid by it. <laughs> There's a whole series of things that they, they, they don't learn to be afraid about because they live in a world where all those things are part of their existence. Also, meaningful relationships between individuals with different racial, ethnic or religious backgrounds and impacts, of course, on how they treat people from different racial, ethnic and religious backgrounds in their life. They are more likely to be understanding of those things because it's not unusual to them because they grew up with it as a child in a school where learning was what important. And just to, just to go back to the point where they're getting better grades. It also... Early exposure to diversity, cultural diversity, reduces anxiety because you've got less things to be afraid of because, again, that's something you've grown up with. Now, from an economic point of view, and here we get to it, going back to what David Zingney was saying earlier here in Australia, school integration efforts produce a higher return on investment. Um, attending an integrated school can be more effective academic intervention than receiving extra funding by putting all the poor kids together. If you put all the poor kids together, then you have to have extra funding. And if you don't do that, then you don't have to waste money on the extra funding because they're all in the school together. School integration promotes more equitable access to resources. It prepares students to succeed in a global economy. And also, it produces more productive, more effective and more creative team players. Because, again, it's what you've grown up with. And children who attend integrated schools have higher earnings as adults. They have improved health outcomes, they live longer, and they're actually much less likely to be incarcerated. So, there's a lesson in all of that for Australia. I find it fascinating, and I think it's now come time we should come back here because I really want to share with you um, one of my old alma maters, a state school nonetheless, which is our great state school for the week. Every week on the Doctor Program we have a special segment to show a different state school is a great school. State schools are great schools. School of the week. State school. School of the week. Great state schools. State schools. School of the week. School for the week here on the Dogs Program. Welcome back to the Dogs Program. Yes, our great state school of the week is a school not even in this state because for those of you who don't know me, I didn't actually grow up in Victoria. I just ended up here because it's the best place to be at the moment, that's for sure. Um, I went to a school in New South Wales, a place called Petersham. If you know Petersham, it's pretty rough as guts place at the time, back in the days in the 70s and indeed the 80s. I went to a school called Fort Street. Fort Street, yeah, Fort Street High School. Now, Fort Street High School is an interesting place. It's a place that draws students from the local community, but it's also a selective high school. Now, what does that mean? Well, let me tell you, Fort Street's an interesting place. It's the oldest, well, one of the oldest schools in Australia. It actually set up in 1849 and is, in fact, the oldest academically selective school in New South Wales. Back in those days, it was a government school. In 1974, before my time, it became a co-educational and it moved to Petersham, where it used to be just down there. Um, they had to move it because um, they put the Harbour Bridge in. It used to, used to be underneath the bridge there, but they said, no, I have to, have to move it out to Petersham. Um, its sesquicentennial was actually in 1999, so about 20 years ago. Now, the school has kids from over 100 different suburbs in the city of Sydney. Of the approximately 930 students... 500 speak languages other than English. The school continues to be proud of an outstanding academic results with 95% of the students each year proceeding to the university of their choice immediately after HSC. And the students' results place them regularly in the top 10 positions in the country across a range of subjects. These students are often prestigious university scholarships, of course, because they're smart kids, because they're state school kids, and they do go to a selective high school. Currently, students um, they have some very very famous people. Um, the, uh, Michael Kirby, uh, the High Court judge, he went to 
to Fort Street, and so did Dr. John Yu. So I'm highlighting Fort Street as a great state school because last week I talked about Swan Hill Special School. Now, Swan Hill Special School, they were spending $50,000 per kid because every child there had a severe educational disability. And they were doing extraordinary work. And they were a state school. And they were a great state school. And they were a proud state school. But Fourth Street High School, a selective state school in Petersham, in inner city suburb in Sydney, is also a state school. But it could not be more different. Okay, now the, the school itself, I mean, I could tell you their NAPLAN results. Their NAPLAN results are obscene. <laughs> They're obscenely good compared with all schools from similar, you know, from, from similar students because a lot of the students that come to go to the school come from wealthier backgrounds. That is true. But they're academically, that, that's the reason they're there. Um, compared to all Australian students, they are one of the top ten schools in the country and they are just absolutely obscenely good. Compared to similar students from various you know, honky-tonk private schools, they are obscenely good compared to them as well. Because no one there is buying their way into success here. They're earning their way into success because they come from um, a background, not, not themselves, because they themselves have passed a test to be there. They are academically um, able students. Although 76% of the kids there um, come from a language background other than, other than English, which I find, I find absolutely fascinating. So when it comes to the NAPLAN schools and the VCS schools, they, are, they, are, they, they cane it. But, and I think this is the interesting thing, how much does it cost to educate a child at Fort Street High School? Well, how much does it cost the parents? Well, it costs the parents in terms of voluntary school fees, which I'm pretty sure a lot of these parents would pay, of $210 per year. So voluntary contribution per parent of a bit over $200 per year. That's their, inverted commas, school fees. But how much does it cost to educate a child at Fourth Street High School, doing all this amazingly good stuff academically and indeed socially, and, and they have I know they have a big program on social responsibility and giving back. Fourteen thousand dollars. Fourteen thousand. About what you'd expect for a gold standard education in a state school with talented kids, around about forty. Now, if you wanted to send your child to a private school. <laughs> The government would contribute about 10,000 and you would have to contribute about 30, so the total would be 40,000. So 40,000 for Scots College, 14,000 for Fourth Street. Which one provides the greatest return on investment? I think the state school, Fourth Street, is absolutely caning it when it comes to that. I think it's fascinating. Um, it has a very interesting history, Fourth Street High School, which I won't go into too much, but in itself, as a contrast to what we were talking about last week with the special school in Swan Hill, they are both almost unrecognisable from each other, Fourth Street High School and the Swan Hill Special School, but they are both great state schools. It's time to go. We've been all around the world with education policy, but if you want to check out what we've been saying here, Dale and I, you can at the website, www.adogs.info, where you can find the links to the podcast, or the 3CR website www.3cr.org.au or indeed if you know a great state school you'd like me to highlight you can give us a call during business hours at 3CR it's 94198377 that's 94198377 but from Dale and myself and Gene will return next week um, it's bye for now
takes more than guns to kill a man, says Joe, I didn't die, says Joe, I didn't die. And standing there as big as life, and smiling with his eyes, says Joe, what they can never kill, went on to organize, went on to organize. From San Diego up to Maine, in every mine and mill, where workers strike and organize, it's there you find your Joe, you're ten years dead.